As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. What is up, guys? Welcome to another episode of Bro History. It's Henry Zamoda and Danny Abdeljabar. Danny, what's up, my friend? How are you? Chilling, man. As per usual. How about yourself? I'm doing pretty good. Besides my voice, which <laughs> I you can clearly hear. Um, I've been sick for the past uh, week or so, so that's why we're late with the episode. Well, I'm still sick. Damn fucking flu, man. Everyone in New York has got some type of sickness or at least everyone I know. Yeah. I mean, um, I was, uh, traveling for the Thanksgiving and a bunch of people at my job were sick. And when we came back from uh break there, uh, pretty much that, that first Monday, like over half of my meetings were canceled because people were out and sick and stuff like that. And I was like, yes, <laughs> extra day. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, dude. Well, you know, my wife's a teacher, so mm-hmm. she brings home every single sickness known to mankind back and known to children. You know, <laughs> yeah, known to children. So I'm sick. My son has been sick and which was was which was extremely scary. Mm-hmm. He wasn't very sick. He just had like a low grade fever and um, you know, he had the sniffles, but he's it's the first time he got like sick. And it's know, the like... first time that mm-hmm. he's been sick. And of course I feel like I feel extremely guilty because I'm most likely the one who got him sick because I was sick first. Mm-hmm. But that's that's the worst part. Like seeing your kid sick, you're like, I'm like, I, what did I do to you? Especially when <laughs> you, know, you, you gave you him some antibodies. Them. That's true. Uh, but he's doing fine. He's okay. We're all all right. I've just been, um, my voice just sounds um, super nasally. So hopefully people can bear can bear with me today but um that's right i think the content's gonna be interesting enough where we can overlook your uh your nasaliness overlook you mean over here (laughs) 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 all right well the show must go on and we've taken too much time before between our last episode and we need to get something out and um honestly this this had was taking me a pretty long time to to do the research on because it's a touchy subject and you know we when you formulate your opinions and, and what you're going to say you want to do it without being insensitive and i mean that like i'm not even trying to be like you know too politically correct uh, when it comes to religion i have i have absolutely nothing against religious people or people of faith I actually have a lot of admiration for people of faith, especially when faith enhances somebody's morality. I, you know, I, I, I'm I'm very envious of that and I think it's great. But um, today we're going to be talking about Christian Zionism. And the reason why I wanted to do this episode is because 
Well, first and foremost, I listened to Daryl Cooper of Martyr Made, the Martyr Made podcast, and his mm-hmm. series on on um, on early Zionism. And something I, by the way, yeah, that, it's that, it's that fantastic, and, and we've been rec- recommending it to everyone. It's a, I think, a five part series or four part series on um, on basically the history of of, of uh, the Zionist, the early Zionist project, all the way up to 1948, the the birth of the of the nation, and then it stops there. Then it doesn't go on anywhere else. It's just the early Zionist project in the 20th century, late late 19th, early 20th century. Fantastic and something I I never realized and um, I, I I really learned from that show where it was how many British political elites were subscribed to post millennialism. They were sincere Christian Zionist mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. Lloyd George and, um, and and Mark Sykes who who co-authored the Sykes Picot Agreement. Right, and um, we're, we're gonna we're gonna definitely. Um define what millennialism is and also post millennialism, but, uh, just obviously has nothing to do with like the, <laughs> the generation. <laughs> yeah. We'll, we'll get into that and cover, cover the basics, but, um, going back to, to Lord George, Lord, Lord George, Lord George, Lord George, <laughs> Lloyd George, excuse me. Something funny that I, I learned about him was that Mark Sykes's son, Christopher Sykes, was was actually one of Lo, uh, Lloyd George's. Why am I saying Lord George? Lloyd George's <laughs> biographers, and um, he he was writing that that uh, that his advisors were trying to the brief Lloyd George on on you know issues in the Middle East and Palestine. And he just really wasn't able to grasp what his advisors were saying. Like he just was was drawing blank stares. Like he just didn't understand the Middle East whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And I'll quote right from him because it's a funny quote. Largely because he could not move beyond the Christian Zionist worldview of his youth when briefed repeatedly on the contemporary geography of Palestine, Lloyd George insisted on reciting from his memory of childhood Sunday school lessons from biblical cities and lands of the Bible times, some of which no longer existed. Hmm. And this is coming from from Mark Sykes's son, Christopher Sykes, mm-hmm. who was the main biographer. And, and um, you know, Christopher Sykes is, is coming from a Christian Zionist family as well. So the whole dynamic is 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 really is really interesting, and the history behind it's really interesting. Um, how how um, the Christian Zionist movement in England um, really started to work with the political Zionist movement that was that was emerging out of out of mainly Central and Eastern Europe. Uh, the other reason why I wanted to talk about this was um, is really Mike Johnson. Mm, speaker and of the House, <laughs> Mike Mike Johnson, um, yeah, the the new Speaker of the House. He is one of the many Christian fundamentalists who serve in Congress. He had previously worked as a lawyer for Ken Ham. And Ken Ham is a creationist from Australia who, you know, he lives in the U.S., but he was a founder and president of Answers in Genesis, (laughs) which is an organization that argues that the earth is 6,000 years old. And Mike um, Johnson and is or was his lawyer yeah was a lawyer for served as a lawyer for him 
Um, but um, yeah, this is this is um, you know a creationist group. They they have a complete literal interpretation of the Bible, and Mike Johnson had actually helped him secure government for uh, government funding for a Noah's Ark amusement park. Oh, that one. Yeah, the one where they build that giant ark. Where was yeah. that? Not like Tennessee or something like that. I think it is. I think it's Tennessee. I it's think Kentucky. that is correct. Sorry, oh, it's Kentucky. Kentucky. It was one of those. One of those. <laughs> so that was so. Mike Johnson worked on that as an attorney. Hmm. But as you can imagine, Mike Johnson is a, is a very extreme Christian Zionist. He, um, you know, he he believed that, you know, he believes that Israel and the Jewish people are God's chosen nation, and that they're going to play a pivotal role in the the end times spoken in the Book of Revelations. Now, needless to say, Johnson's top donor is APAC. Mm. And he has very deep ties to the Israeli right. Um, you know, he goes back and forth to Israel. He, he works with radical settler activist groups. Um, one group specifically called 12 Tribe Films, which is mm-hmm. um, kind of like a, you know, a film production company um, right now. The Likud crowd believes evangelicals are, are really the backbone of Israeli support in the U.S. And that focusing on strengthening that relationship at the expense of American liberal Jews is, is really just a numbers game. So, surprise, surprise, the very first thing Johnson did after becoming speaker was put forward a bill affirming Congress's support for Israel. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know if you saw, but but Congress just ruled that that anti-Zionism, anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism the other day. Mm-hmm. I did see that. Which you know, say say what you we knew that they were going to do that, but it's just. I mean, like you know, this is it, one of those one of those very distinct moments where, you know, um, I, I I don't know how to react to that because on on the one hand I want to be like i don't give a shit what you think (laughs) you know um but on the other hand it's setting like i mean there's no like legal precedent or anything like that you know you can't go to jail for not for being against zionism um but yeah i mean it's weird it's weird weird and it's it's weird and and um you know zionism is a political ideology Mm -hmm. judaism is a religion right and so, um, conflating a political, yeah. yeah, conflating the, a political ideology with a religion in itself, in my opinion, is is anti-Semitic. But you know, you can you can be the judge of that. But my, you know, my big point is that when you see Congress people base their foreign policy on the plot of Left Behind movies, it's mm-hmm. a little concerning. Have you ever seen the Left Behind movies? Yeah. I watched with Kirk Cameron. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're right though. It it is it is a little concerning. When 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 you're when you're basing kind of real real issues real issues of the state of war and peace on, on um prophecy, it's not it's not great. Yeah, I mean all I those movies are basically like like conspiracy no, Christian go- they're thrillers. They're goofy movies. <laughs> they're very goofy movies and they're yeah. you know they're bad. They're not great. They're 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 poorly acted and they have these goofy storylines, but yeah, it's it's a little it's strange. 
maybe we should take a step back because I, I think I think it's kind of uh, hard for a lot of people to grasp the the concept of like what Christian Zionism is because shouldn't shouldn't Zionism be like a more of like a Jewish thing? What what would you, how would we how are we defining Christian Zionism here? So Christian Zionism is I it's Christian support for the Zionist cause specifically the support. They support the return of Jews to their biblical homeland in Israel. I'll quote Paula White, who is the advisor to the White House on faith and opportunity initiatives. And I just took this from, I was just scrolling through israelsallies.org. And it, you know, labels the top 100 allies of Israel of 2023. And each one had a quote next to him. So the top quote, so Paula White says, my deeply held faith and conviction has aligned me to stand with and support Israel in every possible way. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob made a covenant with the Jewish people and promised them a nation. That nation, Israel, is the foundation and birthplace of my Christian faith. I also stand with Israel for geopolitical reasons. Since 1948, the nation of Israel has been America's staunchest ally in the Middle East. I proudly support Israel and the Jewish people. And um, really, this this website, like every single quote, is is basically the same as that, but maybe a little bit different wording. Mm-hmm. Um, this lady is a fundamentalist Christian Zionist. Fundamental Christian Zionists believe the return of Jews to Israel is a key step towards the fulfillment of biblical po- prophecy. Most importantly, the return of Jesus Christ. Mm. And in the words of John Hagee, the well-known televangelist, the final bullet point of his pamphlet on why Christians support Israel is, we must support Israel's right to the land because God said so. Because God said so. I think they're they're probably, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're pointing to God's covenant with Abraham that was described in, in Genesis 13. Um, and believe this covenant extends to pretty much all Jews. So in Genesis, Genesis and, and also in Exodus, God promises the land of Canaan to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, so that the modern state of Israel is, is, is basically a fulfillment of these prophecies for these you know, Christian Zionists. Thus, you know, Israel is, is the only nation on earth that's basically created by a sovereign act of God, which is fascinating. Uh, we talk a lot about like what you know, what makes a nation in, in this case, this, this is the, the first instance that we're talking about one that, you know, where we're saying like literally God made it. <laughs> um, anyway, Ishmael, uh, who's the father of, of the Arab nations was not included in this promise. Yeah. Though he, Ishmael, yeah. Ishmael receives a blessing, but he's not his, his, he is not included in the promise of land. Mm-hmm. Also, there's passages in the book of Isaiah, uh, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. They describe a future return of the Jewish people from exile. They, they believe that the establishment of Israel in 1948 was a significant step, step forward to fulfilling these prophecies. Um, you know, Ezekiel 36 and 37 in particular, they describe the gathering of the Jewish exiles from all nations back to the land of Israel. So Christian and Zionists interpret these chapters as foretelling the return of Jews to Israel in modern times. Okay, I mean this is this is like really hard for me to stomach because I mean first of all I'm, I'm not particularly religious at all, um, which is no surprise. 
but um, it's hard because you know, it's like it's like the the Noah's Ark Museum, right? The Noah's Ark Museum is is this museum that's that's purporting, among many other things, that like the Earth is like six thousand years old, right? Um, it, as it relates to to you know the, these these prophecies in the Bible, are, are we saying that that these 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 folks are taking these words as like literal truths in, in this in this sense, like that that the you know 1948 uh, establishment of Israel is is like a literal uh, um, interpretation from the Bible. Yeah, so they're dispensationalist. So um, that's, dispensationalism, that's <laughs> yeah, dis- dispensationalism is a theological framework within some branches of Christianity. For the most part, in evangelical and fundamentalist circles, it involves a belief that history is divided into distinct dispensations, which are periods during which God interacts with humanity in different ways. So for most fundamentalists, there are seven dispensations, but I mean, depending on what church or or what congregation you go to there could be more or less but generally that there's there's seven dispensations so seven times to like organize the bible mm-hmm. and um for for example the first one is innocence so the innocence is the time of adam and eve so humanity was innocent and and, and lived in a sinless state then there was conscious and this was um you know the time from adam to noah and it was when humans became conscious and they became aware of good and evil. I'm not going to go through all of them, but um, there was promise. And that was the time from Abraham to Moses. And this is where, this is when God made his promise to Abraham and his descendants. Mm -hmm. Um, We live in the period of grace. And grace is the time from death and resurrection of Christ until his second coming. Okay, so zero so, onwards. Mm-hmm. So the final dispensation is millennium, where Christ comes back as described in the book of Revelation. Okay, so millennial millennialists are what? What <laughs> was that word? Post millennial. Post millennialists are saying, you know, they're they're after the period where Jesus comes back, you know, as was described in the book of Revelations. That's where that word comes from. Yes. That's where so, so before Christ returns, there needs to be a period of trials and tribulations. Mm. So God's justice needs to be executed on earth. But first, both living and deceased, so true believers, will be taken up to meet Christ in heaven. And they will escape from earth before the period of earthly tribulation. And the earthly the period of earthly tribulation is gonna suck. It's gonna mm. bring it's gonna bring tremendous suffering. There's gonna be plagues, there's gonna be natural disasters, and then there's gonna be the rise of the Antichrist. Well, if we're if we're playing this game, uh, we can argue that we're already in the <laughs> the earthly tribulation phase, with, yeah, which would be. mean Who that knows? the rapture, which is when everyone gets taken up to to see Christ in heaven before uh, the tribulations, has probably already happened. Was that was that COVID? I don't know. I'm 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 just COVID saying was like, the rapture. You know, well if if we're see see I, again this is this is me I'm not a theologian and I certainly don't study the book of revelations but you know like you said there's there's this 
period of trials and tribulations, right? And we have a group of folks, these these Christian Zionists, these fundamentalists who believe quite literally that the word of God, you know, is is actual truth and that we're, you know, we've seen it in the past as happened, like 1948, the establishment of Israel is like the, you know, one of those turning points that was foreseen in the book of Genesis, excuse me, in the book of Revelations as one of the prerequisites to start the end times. So if that were the case, right, and one of these one of one of the things that is foretold to to happen is this period of earthly tribulation. Would you are? I mean, I guess if I were one of these folks, I'd be arguing that we are now in the period of earthly tribulation. But before the earthly tribulation happens, the rapture had to have happened. Which means that if we're currently in the period of tribulation, that the rapture already happened, and all the people here were not saved. <laughs> so it's it's very uh. I don't know. It's very interesting when I think about it out loud. Like, yeah. So basically people, the people who are followers of Christ will be just, they'll fly, they'll fly up to heaven. Right. They'll fly up to heaven and they'll, and they'll be greeted by, they're going to go into an otherworldly realm and meet Christ. Um, everyone else is, is screwed, including, including the Jews. Um, unless they convert to Christianity, that's, that's mm. their, that's, you know, what their, what the end game is, but what they, but they believe that what will be one of the big signs is a, is a one world government with, with the antichrist. And I, and I find the concept of the antichrist so funny because mm, yeah. um, I just remember back when Obama was president, I think my mom was like, I think Obama is the antichrist. Right. <laughs> Right. I think I mean, like, after so Trump we, was the Antichrist. Yeah, Trump was the Antichrist. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. How could you see Biden as the Antichrist? Well, some people do. <laughs> do you remember that picture of him in front of the, uh, I think it was the uh, the White House, or he was in Philadelphia, I forget exactly, but he was in front of those white pillars, and they, they put up the, the red in the background, but really it was yeah. like red, red, white, Dark and blue. Dark Brandon. Yeah, it looked like, you know, super sinister, like, oh, look, this is yeah, the It devil. was very sinister. <laughs> <laughs> that was a very antichrist type thing, but um, he's just too old and feeble to be the the antichrist. Has to be like this charming guy, yeah, cunning, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's why. That's why I feel like if anyone was going to be the antichrist, well, people said Bill Clinton was going to be the antichrist. He <laughs> well, did get that blowjob in office. <laughs> they said that. They said that Obama was the antichrist. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're Everybody's going with the antichrist. Every, everyone's the antichrist. You ain't cool unless you're the antichrist. Right. I mean, but, um, I, I'd suppose I'd suppose that um, Alexander Millet, that guy from uh, Argentina, have you heard about this guy yet? Yeah, I know. I know who he he's, is. He's uh, he's making some waves. I bet a bunch of people are thinking that he's uh, the Antichrist as well. It's like pretty much anyone that's famous and ha- is in a position of power that's in any way like polar. I'm sorry, but the president of right? Argentina is not the Antichrist. Dude, ask some Argentinians. Yeah, <laughs> the president of Argentina is not the Antichrist. The president of the United some, States some could be him. the Antichrist, there's, but there's not of a South American really country. I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry, no offense, but your country doesn't matter enough to be the fucking Antichrist. <laughs> Dude, I've been reading some shit like people actually think he's like literally the devil incarnate. All right, when Argentina so conquers the rest or he becomes president of the world somehow, then maybe we can have that discussion, but uh, Yeah, right. Come on. Let's let's reserve the Antichrist title for actual people with real global power. 
Right. So, Biden. But all right. <laughs> I digress. Back to the the back to the period of tribulation. Right. So the the, the culmination of the tribulation is is um it's going to be the battle of Armageddon, which involves all the major powers. And this is when the second coming of Jesus is expected to take place, where he will return to earth to establish his kingdom. He'll defeat evil forces, and then he'll bring out or bring about a new era of peace. Right. Yeah, this, this religious conception of the final days of mankind, it's, 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 a, it's a scenario that's mapped out by all of the all of the three Abrahamic, you know, religions in, in extremely similar detail. There's this huge focus, um, on specifically the temple Mount, uh, and, and more specifically who controls it. So for, for the Jews, you know, the temple Mount is the, the site of the first temple of the Hebrews that was destroyed by the Neo Babylonians. And then, and then again by the Romans, um, according to the Jewish traditionalists, the third temple will be built by the Messiah uh, who will uh, not only be the king of Israel, but also uh, a high priest of the this new temple that they'll build. Uh, so until then, no religious Jew is allowed to set foot on the Temple Mount uh, for fear of desecrating the sacred ground, which which brings up a lot of you know contemporary you know um, yeah, issues, right? Like a part of the. You know, part of the grievances as set forth by you know Hamas and why they did their October seventh you know attack was you know uh, affronts on the Al Aqsa Mosque, which happens to be sit on top of the Temple Mount, right? Uh, and 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 secular, or excuse me, really right wing you know, Jewish folks going there and 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 praying, which was apparently supposed to not not be a thing. Anyway, I digress. There there's been fanatics in Israel who have plotted to speed this up speed this process up and and get to creating that third temple by basically destroying the dome of the rock but um those attempts have have been thwarted by by the shin bet um so for for the muslims though kind of bouncing back and forth here the the temple mount is the site of the dome of the rock which is a muslim shrine um and uh the sacred al-aqsa mosque uh is you know the place where muhammad um in, in the Quran that Muhammad mounted a, a, a fine Arabian horse and galloped straight into heaven accompanied by Jesus, which is uh, very interesting. Um, so obviously extremely holy for the, the Muslims as well as the Jews, but also it's important for Christianity. In this uh, dispensationalist view, uh, Jesus returns to earth to do battle on the plain of Armageddon and triumph over the Antichrist, but only after building the third temple. So uh, the dispensationalist Christians have to work to see Israel, Jerusalem, and the Temple Mount are all under Jewish control because they believe that this will lead to blessings for the entire world as as nations recognize and respond to what you know God is seen to be doing in, you know, in and through Israel. Uh, and I guess you know the way that I interpret all of this is that you know the fundamental the fundamentalist belief that God is working through Israel, you know, is is present in the mindset of these these Christian Zionists. Yeah, so, so God is God is working through Israel. Correct. So I, I'm curious because I haven't done too much research on this. I know you you've done a bit more. 
what specific like sects or strains of, of Christianity like follow this belief? So, I mean, a lot of Christians do from, from, um, I mean, even Catholic, some Catholics do, but it's, it's, um, I would say Christian Zionism is, is most relevant within mainline evangelical and independent denominations, including Assemblies of God, Pentecostal, uh, Southern Baptist, as well as a lot of the, you know, independent megachurches. You know, these views, I mean, over the past decades, um, there's been these large Christian radio stations and, mm-hmm. and, and TV stations. Uh, what's that one channel, Mile High or Mile Mile 7? You know, I'm talking about the, that, that like late night Christian news channel that comes on. Oh, um, the 700 club. Is it 700 club? Yes. That's the one. Yeah. 700 club. So I was, I was, I was watching a 700 club once and, um, they were talking about Israeli politics mm-hmm. with like way more. And I'm not even there. Of course they were biased, but they were, they were talking about like detailed Israeli politics um, to the point where I was kind of impressed, like how much they knew about, like, well, you know, this guy's head of, you know, Moret's party is not not the first. It was they they like had a lot of not, they they've had a, like a lot some big segments on Israeli politics where they had like a lot where you're gonna have a, get a lot more knowledge than watching CNN. It's always gonna be like we gotta support Benjamin Netanyahu in the Likud party, but um, it's it's really interesting to watch. That's like that's the this is the show that had Pat Robinson. Yeah, yeah, Pat was, Robinson's right? on that. So uh, I have a quote. So Dale Crowley, who's who's um who was a Washington-based religious broadcaster, he uh, he called them the fastest growing cult in America. It's not composed of crazies so much as mainstream middle age middle to upper middle class Americans. They give millions of dollars each week to TV evangelical even. Evangelists, evangelists who expound the fundamentals of the cult. They read Hal Lindsey and Tim Leahy. They have one goal to facilitate God's hand to waft them up to heaven and free and free from all the trouble from where they will watch Armageddon and the destruction of planet earth. <laughs> so uh, some of the largest donors to Israel are groups such as Christians United for Israel um, international, the, the the International Christian Embassy of Jerusalem, uh, Bridges for Peace. There, there's a there's dozens of of these uh, Christian Zionist lobby groups, but without their, I mean, they get there, there's more money going through the Christian Zionist groups than than like APAC when it comes mm. to supporting politicians. W- without the sustained financial and political support of Christian Zionists in America, the state of Israel probably wouldn't exist anymore. Um, but let's just be real without that bedrock support in the U S it probably couldn't. Mm -hmm. And for many evangelical Christians in the U S the birth of modern Israel in 1948 was viewed as a fulfillment of prophecy. So the creation of Israel along with the, the, you know, the perceived communist threat in the cold war is what really galvanized fundamentalist Christians and conservative political forces in the U.S. Old Testament prophetic chapters found in Ezekiel were interpreted so as to 
predicate a Soviet attack on Israel in alliance with a world led by the Antichrist. Mm. So Israel was at the center of the future prophetic scenario, thus providing both political and theological rationale for Western, Western Christians to give maximum support to Israel. Another mm. big event is, is the Six-Day War, because the six I mean, the Six-Day War is even more relevant than the 1948 war when it comes to Christian support for Israel. Mm-hmm. Because when Israel captured Jerusalem and the West Bank, along with the Gaza Strip, the Sinai, and the Golan Heights in, in 1967, the fundamentalists went wild because the land expansion and above all the, re, the reunification of Jerusalem appeared as nothing short of a divine miracle. Mm-hmm. So um, Nelson Bell, who is the editor of the evangelical journal uh, Christian Today, wrote shortly after the war that for the first time in the more than 2,000 years, Jerusalem is now completely in the hands of the Jews, gives a student of the Bible a thrill and a renewed faith in the accuracy and validity of the Bible. So Hmm. the fact that you know they the, the, that Israel was expanding, was was prophetic, was was a sign that their convictions were were, were true. Um, I mean, it, it it's it's a when you look at it from that frame of reference, it, it it seems to be plausible. At least if you were of the persuasion that that you know the word of of God is is in the Bible and it's all true, then looking back and looking at 67 yeah that would that would make me feel like yeah this is like the the, the proof proof is in the pudding here but i mean it, it took like thousands of years to, <laughs> to happen right uh so yeah well one of the big christian zionists of the 70s and was a guy named hal Lindsay, and he wrote a book called the late great planet earth and this book sold 25 million copies. It's one of the best-selling books in history. Okay. And it was all about, you know, support for Israel. And it, it was basically like kind of a new spin on, on, um, on like the traditional dispensationalist beliefs. But um, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's really interesting how this, this error, and I also think, I mean, U.S. support for, the, the Christian right support for Israel, I think, goes beyond mo- most most Christians in America today are not fundamentalists who be- believe, like, you know, the Bible as literal. Um, I think a lot of the support for at least the older generation comes from um, Cold War politics. Yeah. But this one with combined... With, well, I mean, it was like a, a bit of a concoction, right? Like you said, when 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 you we put together the idea of uh, um, the, the fundamentalist Christian beliefs and, and the 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 ideas that, uh, of comparing forty eight, you know, to uh, a fulfillment of prophecy in the Bible, and there's also rampant, you know, phobia against you know Soviets and communism in general. You put both of those things together, and it makes for a, an easier, <laughs> an, you know, an easier um, 
thing to swallow. Now you got two things. Or you're not super religious. Well, how about <laughs> how about this uh, communist thing, right? You're not super political and you're very religious. So how about this religious thing? You know, it just, it just worked well together. It was a, yeah. And, and honestly, most Americans have Jewish friends too. You know, yeah. or most Christians have a Jewish friends. So it's like, you know, it's just, it's pretty easy to, to, uh, support. Easy to get on board with. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty easy to get on board with. So want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. You'll hear advice on everything from how to build confidence to how to get the best night's sleep. New episodes drop every weekday, and each one is five minutes or less, so you only have to listen a little to get a lot more out of your weekdays. Listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. Um, so where was I? Where was I? So, yeah, following the 67 war, Israel gained an increased portion of U.S. foreign and military assistance. And, um, you know, this is when Israel really becomes that Western pillar of the strategic alliance against the Soviet Union in the Middle East with with the Iran under the Shah holding up the Eastern pillar. Mm-hmm. It was during this period that AIPAC and other pro-Israel lobbies began to increase their power and influence on U.S. foreign and domestic policy. And they noticed the natural affinity that fundamentalist Christians had with Israel. So one of the most significant political components in the emerging alliance was the unseating of the, of the Labor Party, which had been the dominant political faction since Israel's inception or creation in 1948. Um, the Labor Party dominated. Um, they were unseated by the Likud Party when Menachem Begin became president in 1977. And... Menachem Begin, he allied himself with the moral majority movement in the United States. You've heard the, of the moral majority, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah they were, you know. The evangelical group, right? Yeah. So they were kind of like the the neo-moralist, you know, fighting against what they saw were abominations and things like that. Mm-hmm. In, in 1979, um, you know, Jerry Falwell founded the Moral Majority, which was which was um, a lobbying group 
whose purpose was to promote the pursuit of conservative and Christian and family-oriented legislation in U.S. Congress. However, the most important thing, the most important issue, was the destiny of Israel. Hmm. And, um, you know, they were big-time advocates for the Israeli state. Uh, Falwell and Menachem Begin were close friends, or they became close friends through their, you know, their shared lobbying. Mm-hmm. And in forming this relationship, Begin and... and um, you know, fellow Likud member Ariel Sharon were were able to gain support for their ambitious settlement policies at a time when Likud's settlement policies faced a lot of resistance from Jimmy Carter and even to a lesser degree Ronald Reagan. Um, Begin could consistently rely on on the ideological support from from uh, Falwell and, and the evangelical moral majority. Um, but it's really during the 1980s, you know, in the ni- in 1980s, um, the 1980 election, it was estimated that over 20 million evangelical Christians voted for Reagan, and Jimmy Carter was a you know a Southern Baptist evangelical. Yeah, that's um, crazy. They this guy's had, a, an actor. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Democrats traditionally were voting more, voting for Democrats mm-hmm. in the past. And um, one of the reasons why is because Jimmy Carter was showing limited support for some sort of Palestinian state. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he was against expansionist policy, settlement policies. And um, it was, it was during the Reagan administration that the Christian Zionist right really became the absolute dominant strain of the GOP. Like, just go to any, just go look at any congressman or senator in the country on federal, in the federal level. You'll find more diversity on the state level, but on the federal level, it's it's virtually every every Republican is a very fun is 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 um. Or many, I'm not going to say every, but many, many, many Republicans are fundamentalist Christians. I'd venture to say the majority of them are. With with dispensationalist views. Mm -hmm. I mean, Thomas Massey, the other, Thomas Massey voted against the anti-Zionist, anti-Semitism bill. And APAC, has already spent, or, or... pro-Israel groups have already raised like hundreds of thousands of dollars to try to remove him with like really? negative ads. Yeah, it's crazy. I'm not sure what the exact amount is, but at last I checked, it was something like over a hundred grand and trying to remove him from office. Um, so, I mean, there are some, but it's, I mean, not every Christian subscribes to this too. It's, it's still a minority, but it's just a motivated one. And honestly, something else is that this is something that's more of an older phenomenon. More, I think it's like 50 or, or more than 50% of evangelicals who are, I think, millennials and younger don't support Israel. Hmm. So the parent I mean, that according to this, according to this newest uh, uh, house resolution, does that make most of those people anti-Semites? <laughs> yes. It's wild. I mean, just seeing Benjamin Netanyahu is a horrible prime minister of Israel. Makes you an anti-Semite. You'll be called an anti-Semite. So, I mean, I mean, mean, these labels are stupid. 
there were people who believed that statement, you know, um, before the house made this resolution. But now I feel super weird about it because it's now like, does this mean that the current house of representatives would collectively consider people who were against Netanyahu as anti-Semites? Because that would make you and I anti-Semites. <laughs> you know what I mean? According that to the That would make most of Israel anti-Semites. Yeah, right? Yeah, right? Like, like let's let's just be real. Both, yeah. he's, this guy's hated right now. This guy's on his way out. Yeah. Um, this guy's seen as, as letting, falling asleep at the wheel. Mm-hmm. He's already, they're already in a state of cold civil war prior yeah. to the attack on October 7th. Uh, most American Jews hate him. Like, it's not, this is, this is not a popular guy. Mm-hmm. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I there's there's criticizing is say we can say it over and over again. Criticizing Israeli, criticizing the way that Israeli was Israel was created with the expulsion of of the native population and the continued um, political situation with with Palestinians having no rights. Is um, if criticizing those two things makes you anti-Semitic, then I, I don't. I don't really know what to say. Like most, the most prominent critics of Israel are American Jews. So I think it's just. I think I like. I don't even entertain it. Like it's not even something. It's so dumb. It's impossible to entertain because mm-hmm. a real anti-Semites will let you know that they're in. That they they're they're. If you ever talk to a real anti-Semite, they just yeah. can't wait to like find something in common with you so they can be like oh man like yeah hitler (laughs) like they can't wait to like show you like you know like hitler actually had some good idea like they are excited they'll let you know right um so that's that's um that's what i have to say about that but i don't entertain it because it's just so dumb it's so dumb so now let's um, let me get back to the point i think we're, we're venturing off um christian zionism like when when do you think the Christians start believing in this? So, all right, this is a complicated question, but it goes back way further than American evangelicals. Hmm. So these interpretations of the Bible, these the, you know the interpretation that the Jews should be living in their historic homeland, they predate political Zionism the political Zionism of Theodore Herschel of the 19th century. So Christian Zionism is technically the original Zionism is what you're saying? Yeah. So you're, yeah, I, to, to, to a degree. So Christian Zionism is, they're kind of like proto Zionist because Hmm. at least the theological, and I'm not sure, you know, I'm not an expert on Judaism, you know, if there were Jewish thinkers who were, I'm sure they were talking about going back, going to Palestine and, and creating a, a, a homeland, but none of that really, you know, made headway until the Zionist movements that were secular and more nationalist um, gained momentum in the 19th century. So let me, I have a quote from, from um, a British Anglican priest uh, Stephen Sizer, who who's also a theo, he, he's a theologian, he's a historian of of theology, and um, <laughs> theologian, <laughs> theologian. I'm sorry, my voice is help making me not pronounce things correctly. The road to Belfort began in the Protestant Reformation. 
the Reformation brought about a renewed interest in the Old Testament and God's dealings with the Jewish people. From Protestant pulpits right across Europe, the Bible was, for the first time in centuries, being taught within its historical context and given its plain literal sense. At the same time, a new assessment of the place of the Jews within the purposes of God emerged. Puran eschatology was essentially post-millennial and believed the conversion of the Jews would lead to future blessings for the entire world. By the late 17th century and right through the 18th century, especially during the period of the Great Awakening, post-millennial eschatology dominated European and American Protestantism. So, like you said, in a way, um, the Protestant Reformation was really the genesis of Christian Zionism. Or Zionism in general. (laughs) Yeah, or Zionism in, in general. And I don't know if I'm going to go too into this because it's complicated and I, you know, I, I fully don't understand this, this topic, but, um, you know, European Protestant churches, uh, people were hearing the Bible preached in their native languages for mm-hmm. the first time. Mm-hmm. The, the, the Bible was, was, um, it was being, was being taught in, in their languages as well. And so the, the few people who could actually read. Uh, their native language and maybe not Latin could actually now read the Bible themselves. Yeah. But a a thing that's important is that, you know, there wasn't this, um, you know, the layman could, 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 could interpret the Bible to its, to uh, his own devices. Right. um, Which which went all downhill when all the normies got there, got a chance. Yeah. The the barrier of entry, they, they reduced the barrier of entry. And whenever you lower the barrier of entry, you know, things usually get worse. Right. So, um, but the the trend is, is that the Bible started being taught in more of a historical perspective rather than in a moralistic perspective. And, um, you know, the, the trend was that, that um, you know, leaders like John Calvin, uh, John Calvin encouraged believers to interpret Scripture with the help of other parts of the Bible, trusting that Scripture itself would provide the best guide to all of its meanings. This meant that when they explained the Bible in their sermons, they 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 made sure to cover everything that God had said. So this included talking about the history of the Jewish people and the and you know the special promises and the consequences they had based on you know, whether they were loyal or obedient to God. And because of this new interest in ancient Israel, people started to understand Romans 11 in a different way. And, um, you know, Romans 11 is a chapter in the New Testament by the Apostle Paul. It's, it's, it, it addresses the question of the status of the Jewish people and God's plan for redemption. Um, the church had been dealing with the status of Israel and God's salvation plan after the rejection of the Messiah. But for many years, the Roman Catholic Church, they understood Romans 11 to mean that the church included both Jewish and Gentile believers. And that's actually what represented Israel. Mm -hmm. However, after the Reformation, Protestant churches started to think differently. They believed that the verses referred to Jews who had who who hadn't become followers of Christ, so this new perspective on Romans, um, 
I think it's nine through eleven, was a big shift from from the way that the Western churches had been teaching it for centuries. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, as soon after, when it comes to like the Puritans, they they became they started suggesting the idea of like a renewed Christian Israelite nation. So um, there there was um, there was a difference in I guess the way that all this was was, was really interpreted by 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 clergy. Um, but I guess the big question is really is was when this became part of like when, when people in power in these countries started subscribing to these interpretations of the Bible, right? And and I think like the the big the big players here, obviously there there's folks in the in the United States that were uh, you know Christian Zionists, but I think the 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 big power players here, especially in the in the creation of the state of Israel, was the British elite circles. You know, when when did when did Christian Zionism start like going around those you know those British elite circles? So in the in the early 1600s, the political class in England started pushing the idea of bringing back the Jews to their homeland. A, a key member of Parliament named Sir Henry Finch, he had wrote a book called. And, and bear with me right now. The world's great restoration or the calling of the Jews and of all the nations and kingdoms of the earth to the faith of Christ. Wait, that's one book title? That's the title of the book. Jesus Christ. <laughs> I, I, you know, I thought they had a limited amount of paper back then. I guess <laughs> they did as well, much as they could on that. <laughs> Let's see. I'll let Word you count. count. Word but count. Before 25 I forget what I'm words. Say. <laughs> In the book, the book basically suggests that the Jews should go back to the promised land and then reaffirm their connection to it. But he wasn't talking about rebuilding the temple or bringing back the old religious system. Instead, he wanted them to follow Christ. So he wanted them to convert and then go back to their homeland. Hmm. Now, this was still on the French. This was like a French thing. Um, most Englishmen did not share the view that this view for restoration of the Jews to Palestine. But um, this even included King James. King James forced, he, he disavowed them and, and basically censored him. Never, nevertheless, the idea grew significantly with the rise of post-millennialism in, in Puritan circles. And since American puritanism was largely drawn from England, you know this 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 is how that idea made its way to America. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. I want to I want to jump around a little bit. Um, I know we we've been talking about you know the how the different U.S. presidents might have been the Antichrist, <laughs> um, but you know this it, there's there's this thinking in the late 18th and 19th century. You know, in the aftermath of the French Revolution and uh, and the Napoleonic Wars, that you know that there was this this rise in apocalyptic and post millennialist thinking, and and some religious thinkers began to interpret Napoleon Bonaparte as the as the Antichrist. So it's it's fascinating how how this this trend, you know, of you know powerful people being you know associated with potentially being the Antichrist, you know, goes goes back quite a quite a while. Um, some uh, religious thinkers um, 
you know, we're, we're, we're making an interpretation that that was based on the upheavals and the conflicts of that time with, you know, Napoleon's conquest seeing as like basically aligning with this like apoc- apocalyptic narrative of, you know, one world government, which Napoleon was definitely after, you know, or, or more accurately, probably like a 10 nation confederacy in, in the in the book of Revelation. Um, Victoria Clark documented this, uh, you know, excitement in the times uh, she said Napoleon also had uh, his own version of a Jewish state in Palestine that was subservient to the French. So yeah, I guess in this way, Napoleon believed that that with a compliant uh, uh, population of Jews who controlled Palestine, that the French imperial and commercial interests that stretched as far as India or Arabia and Africa, that it could be more 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 readily secured you know so here's here's a a moment in time in in the not so distant past uh where again we're utilizing the the area of the levant as a uh as a foothold for you know for eastern colonialism (laughs) you know um so neither napoleon nor the jews though were were able to deliver on that obviously you know they, they did no one ever set up a a french run you know jewish state in Israel, uh, nevertheless, though uh, his his proclamation is a is a quote barometer of the extent to which European atmosphere was charged with these messianic expectations. Um, but I mean, you could guess how he changed the zeitgeist. Napoleon, that is, you know, he, I mean, Napoleon arrested the Pope at one point, <laughs> and he annexed the Papal States, uh, and he also began like this system, like system. Ah, systematic destruction of the Roman Catholic church in France, you know, just seizing its assets, executing priests, uh, and again, exiling the Pope from Rome. You see, he's doing some pretty antichrist like shit, (laughs) you know, um, by 1815, he, he basically subjugated most of Europe and, and the middle East. So there's that one world government thing. And his plan was to create a United States of Europe, which, you know, where each state was run by a, uh, like a compliant monarch and and you know basically he would be the the supreme king of kings uh and sovereign of the roman empire so you know pretty strong case for for napoleon <laughs> more so than than more so certainly than biden i'll i'll put it that way <laughs> yeah he's definitely more of a <laughs> napoleon's definitely more of an antichrist candidate than than biden yeah. that and um I don't know. I want to eventually. I want to do an episode on on Napoleon as the Antichrist and like look at all the look at and just like review like a bunch of the of the writings of that day, like freaking out, thinking that he was the Antichrist because I think it would be pretty funny. I'd have to crack open Revelations again and start you know piecing together the different ways that he would be the Antichrist. But yeah, that could be interesting. But um. I guess going back to, you know, where, where, uh, you know, the British circles, if there's one proto Christian Zionist thinker that you need to know, cause there's, there, there are, there are many of them. Um, the most important one was the British preacher or might've been Irish, British Irish, uh, John Nelson, Nelson Darby, who was one of the most influential preachers theorizing about the rapture and the periods of tribulation. Mm-hmm. 
you know, he was a zealous missionary who, who funded churches across Europe and the United States. Um, he spent a lot of time in the U.S. late in his life. I think he kind of lost favor with a lot of people in England, so he was forced to be in, stay in the U.S. where he really impacted a lot of the evangelical leaders that come out of America. Um, I guess most importantly, C.I. Schofield, the writer of the Schofield Anointed Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, but... Um, Zionism most likely would pro would would have been simply a religious idea if it were weren't for the intervention of a handful of influential aristic aristocratic British politicians who um, who came to share the same theological convictions as Darby. One in one that's really important to know is Lord Shaftesbury, who was a British. Uh, Tory politician, and his name will come up if you read anything about Christian Zionism, Lord Lord Shaftesbury. Um, I'll quote Don Wagner. One cannot overstate the influence of Lord Shaftesbury on the British political elite, church leaders, and the average Christian layperson. His efforts in religious political thought may have set the tone for England's colonial approach to the Near East, and in particular, the Holy Land during the next 100 years. He single-handedly translated the theological positions of Brightman, Henry French, and John Nelson Darby into political strategy. His political connections matched by his uncanny instincts combined to advance the Christian Zionist vision. So he was a post-millennialist. He fully expected that with God's help, men like him could move history towards the millennial period and the, the, the kingdom of God on earth. Mm-hmm. And he became convinced that the restoration of the Jews to Palestine was not only pre- predicted in the Bible, but also coincided with the strategic interest of British foreign policy. So um, after the Napoleonic Wars, the British became obsessed with, with keeping the French and the Russians out of the Middle East. So Lord Shaftesbury, he argued for a greater British presence in Palestine by sponsorship of the Jewish homeland. And British protection of the Jews would give a colonial advantage over France for the control of the Middle East. Um, it would also do things like provide access to India um, you know, via direct land route. It also would open up new commercial markets for British products. But... Um, you know this view, this you know pre pre millennial dispensationalism was very much a minority view, but now there was a practical and political reason to advance this ideology. That's the that's the key right there. I think honestly, out of out of all the stuff that we've been talking about today, it's really it's really not necessarily by itself that you know a number of people just suddenly became incredibly fundamentalist and started believing that. You know, this that there was this, you know, word of God that had to, you know, had to be upheld or had to be expedited, right? I think, I think it's the intersection right here, the geopolitical intersection that make it, makes it really take off. The idea that once there was a practical political reason to advance this idea, once there was that, that synergy, that's when this takes off. I think that's the important, the most important point. Yeah, it's it's uh, all about connecting the political with the, the- with the theological. Mm-hmm.
Yeah. And then making making it convenient. Because once you make the religion convenient for a political aim, mm-hmm. then you can use it. <laughs> yeah. You can, you can, yeah you, people, you can, it'll catch it on. It becomes it'll real. Catch on yeah. It becomes real. Yeah. Um, another interesting thing about Shaftesbury is that he came up with the slogan, a country without a nation for a nation without a country. Okay, which, that's troubling. <laughs> which inspired, which which isn't the same thing, but it, it inspired the Israel Zagwell and Theodore Herschel phrase, mm-hmm. a land of no people for a people with no land. Mm-hmm. So yeah. this guy died before Israel existed or, or even the Zionist movement really took flight. He died right. in late 1880s, but he's certainly the the grandfather or the of um of of british zionism mm-hmm. now um it is important to note is that all this discourse is taking place prior to the term zionism even being a thing so the the term zionism was not coined until 1885 by the austrian jewish writer nathan bernbaum and Birnbaum had been a leading spokesman for, for the Jewish national homeland prior to Herschel entering the picture. You know, Herschel got involved in the Zionist movement while covering the Dreyfus affair as a journalist. You know, the, the Dreyfus affair was when a, when a Jewish French lieutenant was wrongly convicted of treason. Right. And the whole situation sparked this ugly wave of anti-Semitism in France. Mm-hmm. A country yep. where Jews were comparatively well integrated uh, compared to, you know, Eastern European countries or, or territories in the Russian Empire. But from this event, he was convinced that the Jews of Europe just had no other options. Like, you know, the the wave of the wave of, of anti Semitism that that kind of spurled from that moment was was pretty terrible. So you 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 really get when you the thing about the whole you know you even even though I, I criticize Israel a lot I, I always think of myself man if I was a Jew in the 19th century or the early 20th France, century I would yeah. be a hard not just France France is a better place to be, be a Jew but like especially if you were a Jew in like the in the pale settlement mm. or just anywhere else I would be a hardcore Zionist. Yeah, hardcore probably. Zionist. Like, how could you not be an extremist? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so I always basically getting bullied all over Europe, you know? And, yeah, and, it's you like, know, how you, do you, you know, not want to advocate for a national homeland? Yeah. You know, people changing their names and stuff and, you know, just being treated like second-class citizens. Like, that's it's absolutely I mean, justifiable while the, why the, why the project started. It makes sense. I mean, it makes sense. And 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 on top of that, it's being egged on in in favor uh, by the people who basically don't like you. You know, uh, the people who want you out anyway. They love the idea of you leaving. <laughs> you know. Yeah. yeah. So so it's, again, it's um, another one of those intersections of like the of like the 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 the, the kind of fundamentalist ideology and like a practical political geopolitical like you know idea yeah that's how it kicks off so 
Yeah. So, you know, Herschel is, is elected president of the Zionist organization in, in 1897. And um, by, by 1897, Jewish leaders who favored a Zionist state had already won the support from many important senior British political figures. And this was largely due to a man named William Heschler. And Heschler was an Anglican, an Anglican priest. He became a chaplain in the British embassy in Vienna in 1885, which put him in connection with Theodore Herschel, who was based out of Austria. And Heschler was a crusader against anti-Semitism. So he had, you know, he basically was, was, he was honestly more of like humanitarian. So he had reached, you know, the, the conclusion that, that Jews would never be safe in Europe. You know, he, you know, he's like, these people need a national homeland. And, um, you know, he became the, you know, Herschel's chief Christian ally in realizing the vision of the Zionist state. Hmm. So um, he was one of the only Christians invited to attend the World the World Congress of Zionists. I actually have a quote from Herschel about him, which was um, so Herschel wasn't wasn't religious, but he was superstitious, and he recorded you know he he records a meeting with Heschler on uh, in, in 1986 in his diary. The Reverend William Heschler, chaplain of the English Embassy here, came to see me. A sympathetic, gentle fellow with a long gray beard of a pro- with with the long gray beard of a prophet. He is enthusiastic about my solution of the Jewish question. He also considers my movement a prophet- a prophetic turning point, which he had foretold two years before from a prophecy in the time of Omar. He had reckoned that at the end of the forty-two prophetic months, total twelve sixty years, the Jews would get Palestine back. This figure he arrived at was 1897 or 98. <laughs> so, so 1897 was the year that Heschler expected the Jews to begin, begin their return to Palestine. Um, and then here, here's another quote. Herschel described their second meeting at Heschler's apartment. Um, Herschel was amazed to find the books from the floor to ceiling, nothing but Bibles, in a large military staff map of Palestine made up of four sheets covering the entire floor of the study. He showed me where, according to the calculations, our new temple must be located in Bethel because that is the center of the country. He also showed me models of of the ancient temple. We have prepared the ground for you, Eschler said triumphantly. I take him for a naive visionary. However, there is something charming about his enthusiasm. He gives me excellent advice, full of unmistakable, genuine goodwill. He is at once clever and mystical, cunning and naive. <laughs> so it's just funny, like the, you know, their the the personalities. Because I think Herschel was uh, Theodore Herschel was an atheist. Like he was, you know, he didn't really care about the the religion of Judaism. It was it was more, you know, Zionism doesn't really take the characteristic of a religious movement at all. It really, it, it more or less takes the, the character of the same type of nationalist groups that were going on 
in the Russian Empire and Prussia and places mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. It's a quasi-nationalist idea. Or an Austro-Hungarian Empire mm-hmm. or the former Ottoman states. Like, it's the same thing. It's just, you know, this state is in, is, in, is in a different continent, you know? Yeah. This state that we were going to is different. It's in a different continent, and there's other people who live there. So, um, but yeah, his, um, you know, Heckler's, uh, you know, diplomacy made a radical shift in the Christian Zionist thinking, thinking, um, thinking away from the views of, of early rest, you know, restorationists who saw restoration to the land as a consequence of Jewish conversion to Christianity, um, Heschler was insisting instead that it was the destiny of Christians simply to help restore the Jews to Palestine rather than to convert them first. Um, then there's David Lloyd George, and which we I started off with the quote with with David Lloyd Lloyd someone about uh, Christopher Sykes's quote about him, mm-hmm. which I found humorous. But I have another quote because David Lloyd George was the Prime Minister of 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 uh, England after, you know, during, during World War One or two years into World War One in 1916, he became prime minister and he was prime minister when, when really the Belfort declaration was, was took place. He was a big Zionist too. And he, here's a quote from him. I was brought up in a school where I was taught for more about the history of the Jews and about the history of my own land. I could tell you all the kings of Israel, but I doubt whether I could have named half a dozen of the kings of England and not more of the kings of Wales. We were thoroughly imbued with the history of your race in the days of its greatest glory when it, when it founded the great literature which will echo to the very last days of this old world, influ- influencing, molding, fashioning human character, inspiring and sustaining human motive, for not only Jews, but Gentile as well. We absorbed it and made it part of the best in the Gentile character. Hmm. So him talking to, I believe he's actually talking to, you know what? I didn't get that part of the quote, but I just thought it was interesting. And then of course, the, you know, the other big Zionist, Christian Zionist was, um, was um, Arthur, James Belfort, who who pioneered mm-hmm. the Belfort Declaration in 1917, and Belfort was the British Foreign Secretary at the time. And like Lloyd George, Belfort had been brought up in an evangelical home and was sympathetic to Zionism because of you know the influence of the dispensationalist teachings. So um, you know these these um, these are the people. It really comes out of the British. The, it's it's the British political class influenced by this, you know, Puritan view of the Bible, combined with the political aims of a national group, is what created the modern state of Israel. It's interesting. Yep. In in particular, I think I think after having this chat with you, Henry, I think I, I'm I'm pretty settled on I, I, it's it's the that intersection. I can't get that out of my head, you know. 
uh, between between the 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 fundamentalist ideas, you know, the the theological ideas, and the more you know practical or or pressing, you know, geopolitical um, functions. And I think you know when those two get together in these in these various points of history that we discussed, this is it, it promoted the idea of Zionism. And it's interesting to, to, to make those comparisons today, you know, just thinking about that out loud. Like we, we didn't really, we didn't really get too much detail about it. Like the contemporary reasons why, why Zionism is, is, is super useful, except for in the very beginning of the conversation where we're talking about things like, you know, Mike Johnson, right. And how much money he's getting from APAC. Right. Um, but I wonder, I wonder, you know, now that we've spoken about how, how the 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 religious components syncs up with the geopolitical components like what what are the what are the different ways today that that promoting that the zionism is working in that respect particularly in the u.s like what what is, what is the intersection today do you think man that's a big question it might be served better for another another day because i'm getting kind of tired <laughs> but I would say yeah. I would say that in short, I would just say that I don't know. I think I think it's complicated because there's so many different motivations mm-hmm. at this point. Most people in America are not fundamental evangelicals. You know, most most people around the world generally are becoming more secular yeah, or not attending church. I don't think most people are like, I think most people's, I guess in terms of, so you're asking why, what's the political advantage of supporting Zionism now today? Yeah. And how, do, and how I mean, that intersects I think a lot of well it is with just, the religious one, you know? I think a lot of it, when it comes to politics, it's, it's just that there's, there's a lot of money there's a there's a big there's a big consequence supporting Israel if you're in federal politics. the 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 Israel lobby is extremely powerful. It has it's it has multiple parts, including a Christian Zionist part, and it can cost you your political career if you if you if you're not actually it's cost many political careers. I mean George Bush, senior blames the Israel lobby for him not being reelected. Um, but well, I mean, um, here's, here's one, here's, here's one I can build on what you're, what you're getting to. I think, you know, I think one way that there's that intersection for me is, is how these people will, will utilize a fundamentalist Christian ideology as almost the pretext for which to support Zionism, to support, you know, uh, uh, is Israeli, you know, interests. But in actuality, it's that intersection of perhaps they do hold those beliefs religiously, but, but in truth or, or, or in, in, in more practical sense, they kind of have to, right? Uh, they, they specifically the, the as you pointed out in the beginning of the show the, the Republicans kind of have to uh, because if they don't then they're not going to get any money or you know in some cases 
you know, might be actively sabotaged for not holding those political beliefs. So, you know, you, the intersection there for me is, okay, you might have those Christian beliefs, but also, you know, it's, it serves you to, to, to promote this, the Zionism politically. Yeah. It's a lot of atheists support it too. It's just, it's just a matter of like, it's, it's just a lot easier for your political career to not piss off a powerful lobby than to do so. And also a lot of the Israeli foreign policy goals and a lot of the Israel lobby goals, they line up with the, they line up with other lobby interests, specifically the arms industry. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, that's what, um, you know, I think the, the best description of, what the neoconservative movement is the intersection of the Israel lobby with the, with the military industrial complex. Mm -hmm. And I mean, those, those are two very, very powerful groups. So if you are not going to take money from them or if you're, or if you're not going to, um, or if you're going to, you know, oppose them, then they'll fund your competitors or, you know, smear you with all sorts of things. So, you know, there's there's not that much political hope. Like we'll see how Thomas Massey deals with this. Yep. Um, but I'm tired and <laughs> so am I. I got the flu. And um speaking about controversial subjects when you're getting tired is uh usually not smart. So I say we end <laughs> Probably this. Probably not. Yeah, sounds like a good idea. (laughs) All right, guys. Thanks for listening to another episode of Bro History. It's always a pleasure to have you listening. If you like the show, you can rate and review the podcast on Apple or on Spotify. You can also join our Patreon. And then you can also join our Slack when you join our Patreon, which is our very fun community where we continue the discussion that we're having. Danny, anything else? Nope. All right. Peace, guys. Peace.